Welcome to the public morality. Recent polls suggest President Biden and former President Donald Trump are running neck and neck, headed into what many assume, minus any unforeseen events, will be a 2024 rematch. But can such polls be taken seriously? Presidential polling has taken a hit since the 2016 election. Moreover, presidential polling has become an amorphous term that has created, in my view, a one-size-fits-all description. And with most things in our public discourse, it is far more complicated. To discuss polling, especially on the presidential level, I'm honored to be joined once again by political scientist Mitchell Brown. Professor Brown is the Curtis O. Lyles Professor of Political Science at Auburn University and editor of the Journal of Election Administration and Research Practice. Professor Mitchell Brown, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you for having me. I'd like to begin this conversation by having you provide us with a uh, Reader's Digest analysis of what constitutes political polling and, and what's the purpose of a poll. Sure. So the, the idea of polling is that somebody, for some reason, wants to find out how the public feels about something. And they, they define who the public is and try to um, contact the public to ask them questions, to, to get an answer to their question. Um, the polls are limited by resources. And in order to know what the public, however you define that is, uh, feels about something, you need to ask the public. But often we can't ask everybody. So we take a sample of those people. And that's a subset of the public and ask those people the questions and then try and infer from their responses what the, the larger public feels. And, and so that's the short version about what a poll is. Uh, how reliable, in, in your view, um, are political polls and, and, and take where we are some 10 months before the general election when we talk about poll reliability, is that even a question that should be posed? Um, absolutely. It's a great question. There are numerous instances in the past where polls have uh, been done very poorly and given us bad information about how the public feels. Um, the, the, the downside of a bad poll is that we, we know there's a, a psychological component to elections called the bandwagon effect. And so someone who doesn't have very strong feelings about a particular candidate or party will be more likely to line up behind the candidate or party that they think is going to win. And so if polls show a particular candidate ahead and that and people line up behind them, then the polls have influenced how a small subset of people are going to vote. Um, they, they're important for campaigns, obviously, or maybe not obviously, but they're important camp for campaigns because they help people running for office and the folks managing those campaigns understand where to put effort or maybe when they need to change messaging or try a new way to attract likely voters. Now, by my unofficial, non-scientific analysis, that really lowers the bar, um, political polling, at least at the presidential level, 
has lost some confidence, say, beginning in 2016 when um, former President Donald Trump defeated Hillary Clinton. Uh, were the polls wrong or, or, or was the answer more complex? Well, the in, let's go back further, right? Um, because part of the answer to this is technical. Um, when we talk about polling and major polling failures with presidential campaigns, the 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 gold standard failure is the 1936 <laughs> Literary Digest um, poll, which showed that um, candidate Landon was going to beat Roosevelt by a landslide. And history shows us the opposite actually happened. And and what happened with that. Um, poll was that the folks who were running the Literary Digest surveys used the same techniques they'd been using for 20 years, which was to create a sample from what they refer to as a sampling frame. It's a list of all the people that they know are um, fall into eligibility. And in that case, they used a list of people who were club members and who had a phone listed in the um, phone directory. And, and the problem in 1936 is we were going through a Great Depression, and m most people weren't paying members dues to clubs, nor had phones. Um, and, and so they were only polling a particular slice of the electorate, in this case, wealthy people who preferred Landon over Roosevelt. And, um, and, and, and so when we see major polling failures, they're usually because in, in some way the sampling frame um, has gone wrong. I mean, sometimes the questions are bad, and which your question gets to about nuance of public opinion and how people feel. But, but one of the big problems that pollsters have faced over the last 25 years is about how to get an accurate sampling frame. And um, it, you know, so what we did for a long time, once telephones became ubiquitous across the country, this is pre-cell phones um, with landlines, was used phone directories to draw samples. And that was the sampling frame. Um, so cell phones come into use and we no longer have phone directories of cell phone users, but there are ways to get cell phone numbers. And, and then what happens by around 2016 is that landlines fall off completely and or not completely, but mostly. And so there's only a real specific subsets of people using landlines and you get access to some of the um, some of the cell phone numbers, but not all the cell phone numbers. And then cell phone users get a little bit more savvy and opt out of answering calls from people they don't know who aren't part of their contact list. And there are other technical things like this that happened with 2016. And, and so one of the big questions is, are you asking the right people in order to draw inferences to the broader population? Um, and there were questions in polling in 2016 about, you know, at the time there was some uh, feeling that people, some of the Trump supporters were embarrassed to say they were Trump supporters and in the polling would say they weren't going to support Trump when they really did. Um, now, the Trump supporters have completely um, flip-flopped on that now. And no matter what former President Trump does, they are loud and vocal Trump supporters. And so it's sort of a different world in that way. But but there are a lot of real technical issues about why 2016 was a failure. And, and the polling companies 
um, have changed, the, at least the national polling companies have changed their strategies for getting that sampling front. And couldn't we also add to, to that analysis is that it's one thing to poll people. You don't poll the electoral college. And so the uniqueness of the American system also throws a wrench into the, to that analysis. Would that be, would that be accurate? A hundred percent. And so if you look, if we're just talking about the presidential campaign and you look at national polls now, you know, it's like, oh, okay. So we've got in most of the national polls, Trump ahead of Biden by some amount around 3%. Um, when you average all those national polls together, but, but that's not really actually what matters. What matters is about six States right now, maybe seven or eight, depending. And um, because the way the Electoral College is set up, those strongly Democratic states are going to go for Biden. Because, frankly, Biden and Trump are really, if you look at the polling figures and minus some catastrophic event, they're going to be the nominees. And then there are particularly strong Republican states that are going to go for Trump. And so you have essentially six, maybe seven or eight maybe nine, depending on you look at it, how you look at it, states that are really the places that you need to look about what the Electoral College is going to do. And the problem then for understanding what's going to happen and trying to predict the outcome of the election is the polling for those particular states um, aren't quite as robust or as reliable. And so we, we can look at the results of those states right now and say, okay, it looks like maybe Trump is the favorite in most of those states, but not all. But the margins of errors in those polls um, are make that um, make that inference actually not a great inference to make. We we can't actually know because those margins of errors and pulling this far out, um, you know. Is it and predicting the future this far out from the presidential election is probably a bad idea because a lot of things can happen in the next 10 months. Well, I, I guess uh, that leads to my next question. There's a natural inclination to view polling as predictive. Um, and if that's true, if, if that's true, that that supposition is true. Are, are, are we guilty of perhaps giving polling a responsibility that's not really in its job description? It's like it's not its job to be predictive. It's just a sample. Well, it is just a sample, right? And, um, and the, the point of the, the margin of error is to try and understand with what level of confidence we can infer from that sample to the population. Um, and, and that's one layer of complication. The other layer of complication, to your point, is that it's impossible to know, based off of what people report their preferences are now, what their preferences are going to be 10 months from now. And we also have a group of people in these polls who we don't actually know if they're going to turn out to vote or not. So in some ways, if you've drawn the wrong people who are actually not going to turn out to vote, even with a pretty tight margin of error, if you don't know those people are going to vote, then you can't infer to the population and you can't accurately forecast the result of the election. 
I, I want to go back to an earlier point that you made, um, because when you said the gold standard of polling errors was 36 election with Alf Landon, this is probably the first time Alf Landon has been mentioned on the public morality. I thought for sure you were going to go with 48 and um, Truman. Uh, Dewey. Oh, also but, that. Also that. <laughs> <laughs> but but that notwithstanding, would it be fair to suggest that polling, like many other industries, looks very different in the 21st century when we compare it to 20th century practices? You sort of touched on that. I'd like to have you expand. Yeah, absolutely. So. So in the 20th century, um, and that makes me feel old because I I am a 20th century gal, right? Well, this is, um, but in the, well, well, plurality that makes us feel old. Go ahead. <laughs> in the 20th century, the, the the sampling frames were drawn mostly from the these telephone lists, right? And and so the poll companies had these lists and they would draw probability samples from them. And what happens when we move away from land-based phones is that there's the scramble to figure out how to get public sentiment and register public sentiment when you don't have as reliable sampling frames. And, and so they, they're, we get for about the first 15, 16 years um, of the 21st century, this attempt to try and draw similar kind of sampling frames from cell phone users. Uh, for the most part, we see this failure in the polling for the 2016 presidential election, and then the the polling companies respond, um, at least the national polling companies respond. We know less about what's happening with the state polling. And, and so we get a variety of methods to do this. Now, one of the things that you'd see on um, television news shows um, for example, if you if you watched Fox News shows ever ten years ago, is there would be you know you know they they put a question up on the screen how are you, how are you going to vote for president or some kind of um, other kind of question leading questions about policy preferences and say you know call this number if you support it or call this number if you oppose it and and say so you've got these like fake polls essentially because only certain people opt into those shows and only certain people opt in to um, making those kinds of calls. Right. And, and so that's just bad polling, but, but there's other kinds of things that people have done to experiment, to try and make the polling more accurate. And so one of the, the big things that, that folks started doing is opt in online polling. And so you have people who agree to take polls and they do them through the internet and the as a polling company you collect specific demographic demographic and behavioral um, attributes of the people and then you try and match what you want for your particular poll or your study to this population that you've got subpopulation um, another thing that folks have been moving to then now is something called address-based polling, where they, they essentially do what they did with the old phone books, and they use USPS um, lists of addresses of people and try and recreate probability samples from those address bases. 
and and the, they've been moving more and more towards panels for these probability samples too. And and the idea then is with these major national polling companies is that they're using multiple ways of polling. So the bias and error that's introduced from each particular way, because there is bias and error introduced from each particular way, is mitigated by having um, essentially what's referred to technically technically as triangulation, right? Getting the um, same data here from as many sources as possible. And, and, and so the hope in that kind of polling technique is that you um, minimize the kind of bias that gets you to these bad results. So you, you, you're throwing out these 20th century words, triangulation. I associate that with uh, the Bill Clinton administration because he was criticized by Republicans for using triangulation tactics. So, <laughs> uh, there, so there, you shows, there you go. <laughs> this shows becoming an ode to the 20th century. Um, there is a tendency, in my view, to be swayed by the poll's headlines without understanding the details of the poll's findings. Your thoughts? Sure. Um, you know, opinions and beliefs and ideology and attitudes are really complex and they're nuanced. And what we do when we poll is we reduce all of that human complexity to some characteristics um, and then we further reduce it and limit it by the kinds of questions that we ask. And then we further reduce all of that complexity by how we report it to the public, um, usually in a way that tries to grab attention and get people to look at something, particularly because most people aren't using, aren't reading papers and aren't reading in-depth analysis anymore and are scrolling the internet and looking for headlines that catch their eye and maybe, maybe read, you know, the first little tidbit and think they know something. So absolutely. You know, it's interesting because you, you, you make it sound, uh, these are my words, that we can really reduce a poll to a good poll corresponds with what I believe and a bad poll are findings to the contrary. <laughs> Am I oversimplifying it? But I feel that's what I just heard you say. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, what I and what, what I what I believe what I think I believe right now in the moment that I answer your question, how I think I will act in the future right now based off of how I'm feeling at the moment. That that is the limit of what we can know from a poll, right? We can't actually know how people are going to behave in the future. People don't know how they're going to behave in the future. We have great intentions all the time, you know. I'm I'm going to lose ten pounds this year. Or I'm going to stop all of the antisocial behavior I engage in, or I'm going to give to charity, or I'm going to actually turn out to vote this year. But but maybe actually when push comes to shove and I'm in the moment, it's raining outside and I don't want to leave the house, or my kids are driving me crazy, or my babysitter canceled, or I have to stay late at work. And I don't do any of those things. And um, and, and so we can only know what somebody feels in the moment that they're willing to report. And we can't know anything else beyond that. Now we can using other kinds of techniques, you know, when we think about um, we've got all this data about people and their behaviors that are online now and captured 
through social media, through credit card transactions, through web searches, and all of that can be extracted. And so, so one of the one of the really interesting things that we see um, ha- that that started in terms of micro targeting people to try and convince them to believe certain things or act in certain ways is using this big data and analyzing this big data to try and target people based off of those behaviors that are captured through these vast online databases. Um, and, and in some ways, those are probably better data than polling data about what we're actually likely to do in the future. When you were giving your list of things that, that, that you might do in the future, I was waiting for you to say that you were going to root for Alabama football, but maybe I was just a bit too hopeful. Ha <laughs> uh-huh, War Eagle. <laughs> I could. I'm sorry. I couldn't. I could. I couldn't resist that. Knowing that you're at, at Auburn, that's just that's just sacrilege. I couldn't resist that. <laughs> no problem. I get that all the time. Uh-huh. So, yeah. So that that that's a bridge too far in terms of behaviors that one might do. Would that be accurate? <laughs> that, that, that would be accurate. Yes. <laughs> um. Professor Brown, how diverse is polling today? And when I ask you about diversity, I'm not just talking about the normal indicators such as race and gender, but also in terms of, say, education, income level, age, et cetera. So how diverse is the process today in your view? Well, it depends what type of polling you're engaged in, right? So if you're engaged in polling, that uses um, cell phones and you're calling people on cell phones. You're, you're obviously only going to get people with cell phones and who choose to answer those cell phones. Right. And, and so that's, that's a particular slice of people. Um, if you're using the opt-in online based um, strategy for pulling a sample, you're going to get the people who um, opt into that. And um, having, having used some of these to do some public opinion research in the past, I'll tell you that they tend to skew um, slightly younger and slightly more male and slightly more white. Um, there is a, a large range in diversity, but that, that tends to be how they skew. With the addressed-based uh, probability samples, you're going to get a, a much more reflective of the population pool, and, uh, but the, they're, they're greatly more expensive. Um, I'll give an example of a, a study I did a couple of years ago. We were looking at election officials' messages that they actually use to try and connect with the public to see if um, any of them resonated with some groups more than other groups. And um, the we doing um, focus groups, we, we collected all of these messages from election officials all over the country. We did some national focus groups on Zoom and, and that was biased and skewed in the way it was because focus groups, you know, inherently are, um, but, but got some really great in-depth information. We then used that information to create a series of messages and we um, set them up as tweets at the time tweets. I don't know what they're called now. X's. I don't, I don't, I don't know how to say that, um, <clears throat> but we set them up that way and we varied the, um, race and gender of the election official giving this message to the public. And we then um, used 
the online opt-in um, strategy for, we, we worked with a company that had these um, samples set up. And so, so we sampled about 2000 people across the country and that survey, it was about a 20 minute survey because we had a bunch of battery of questions and this intervention and it cost us just to get the people, not, you know, not the researchers time, not anything else, just to get the people um, about $35,000. And, and it wasn't a probability sample. We were matching on certain characteristics that we wanted to make sure we had diversity on. Um, but you know, that it was not a probability sample. And um, to get the probability sample, it was going to be about three times as much money. So, so imagine then that you're trying to do sampling um, multiple times in advance of a presidential election. Some of these some of these polls that come out are being done every few weeks from some of these national polling companies. Like that's a huge investment. Now I imagine there's an economy of scale there for them and they weren't charged nearly as much as we were. Um, but, but still the difference in that probability sample and the online samples um, is very different. So it's, it's wildly expensive. And I've now completely lost the thread of what you actually asked me. And so if I've gone in a weird direction, I apologize. That, 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 that's okay. That, Weird directions is sort of the hallmark of this show, so don't. No, no, it's not. It's it's, it's 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 not a problem, but no, I I just talked about the complexity of the of diversities. What we initially where where that went, but no, but you just you gave not only a, a good answer to that, but also a great to my next question, which is when you start talking about size and scope and cost. Uh, you you mentioned earlier in the 20th century, most people had telephones and that was the way that people were um, contacted. Now with people having cell phones, I'm assuming the success, the contact rate goes down and with, with people using now using cell phones, does that have a larger impact on the overall quality of a poll? Uh, absolutely. A absolutely. And and it's why after the failure of the polling in 2016, then that these big polling companies go to multiple different ways to draw these samples so they can um, try and approximate and have better ability to infer from the sample to the population. Uh, but it's just wildly more expensive. And it's why it's hard to have confidence in these state-based polls. And so if we go back to the the real question about polling for the presidential election, it's somewhere between six and nine states that really matter about the result of this election. And um, the, the state-based polling, we just don't have as much information about how those polls are being done. But the sample sizes are certainly smaller, and um, there's no real information out there across the states about how they're drawing their samples. And so we can look at these polls, and the most recent ones um, in most of those 
six to nine important states show Trump ahead, but the margins of error suggest we don't actually know that. And the questions about how those polls are being done, how the samples are being drawn, and who from mean that we can't actually know what, and and we certainly can't infer well. We can know what those people, you know, the 700, say, for example, people who are polled in a particular state think, but we know we can't infer definitively from that sample to the population. Throughout this broadcast, we have used sort of the amorphous term polls as if polls are a one-size-fits-all proposition. Talk about the difference between, say, Gallup, a Gallup poll and Monmouth University polling. Are, are there differences there? Yeah, sure. I mean, this is part of what I was referring to about national polls versus the state-based polls. Um, like the Gallup polls are, are part of this constellation of national polling firms that have a lot of money that we know have changed how they are drawing their data and from whom that have diversified a great deal in terms of drawing their samples from multiple different sources and using different kinds of techniques. And they're getting big nationwide, usually. They, they can drill down and look at a particular state. Um, samples. The, the, then when you get usually to these college-based, university-based polls, right, um, they're limited by the technology they have or the kind of relationship that they have with a bigger polling company. The samples tend to be smaller, and we have less information about how their samples are being drawn. And, um, and and so it's why, generically speaking, um, we can look at these state-based polls and say, okay, it looks like, you know, in state X, Biden's ahead or in state Y, Trump's ahead. But, but we don't have quite as much confidence in that as we do in the national polls. What, what is statistical bias? Oh, oh you know, I... Um, there are all kinds of bias. I was just going to say, I, I taught an entire graduate seminar for a whole semester on bias. <laughs> so, <laughs> so in 30 seconds, let me say, <laughs> there's all kinds of bias. And um, it, it's, it's, it's the introduction of an element that's um, not stochastic, not random, that um, means that our, our results are less likely to reflect the true population um, preference or statistic. And so, you know, in, in popular language, what well, we can talk about it is skew or um, something like that. But, but, it, but it sh in short, means that um, what we think we know from a sample, actually the population is different than that. And in terms of the conversation we're having, um, it, it means that what we think we know, how people are going to vote, um, we, we don't actually, and we can't actually know that. And, and there are um, multitudes of sources of bias that get introduced in any kind of research. And so good research attempts to minimize those types of bias and communicates all of the assumptions that the research used when setting up the research and conducting the research and analyzing the um, analyzing the data, so so the reader understands what those limitations are. 
And that that's, you know, that's the hallmark of good research. And, and it's why we can have more confidence in those national polls than in the state polls, because we know uh, they report a lot more about what they're doing and how they're doing and what their margins of error are. Now, briefly putting on my cynical hat, I could imagine um, that one way to counter a poll that's perceived as being guilty of statistical bias is to create a biased poll in the opposite direction, which ultimately serves to dilute the credibility of all polling. Now, am I, am I too cynical on that? Or is that, is, nah, is that, nah, nah, nah. In, in, in fact, you should be even more cynical than you are. Um, th- there's this other thing that it, not polling firms do, but um, certainly some firms that help with campaigns that, that that's called a push poll. And the idea behind a push poll is you're, you're mimicking asking people's opinions, but what you're really doing is seeding opinions. And so you ask questions in leading ways to try and either evoke a particular response, because that's what you want to push out to the public, because remember the bandwagon effect, or because you know you've captured somebody who might be on the fence or who has a particular preference and you want to reinforce that. And so you ask leading and biased questions to evoke a particular type of response. So, um, and, and that's, it's referred to as a push poll and it's seen as like, you know, in terms of quality research or really big no-no, but in terms of strategy and campaign strategy is something that you see out there in the world sometimes. All of this, um, Professor Mitchell, um, is, I I dare I say, can be confusing and and, and overwhelming. Let's say um, candidate Joe Smith is ahead by five points. Um, Does it matter if it's a Democratic or Republican poll uh, put on by business leaders and labor leaders or university. I mean, all is heard is that Joe Smith is up by five points. How important are those other factors, a democratic poll, business poll, so on and so forth? Well, um, <laughs> how important those factors are depend on the commitment of the people who are doing the research to doing as unbiased research as they can. And, and as the consumer of that, you can't know that. Um, th- though I, I will say, you know, we, we talk about, you know, there's, a, there's a lot of narrative out there about like Fox leans more right. And, and obviously in all of the objective um, research about it, it, it does. Um, on the other hand, I know personally some of the pollsters for Fox and, and they are strong quality researchers and so, you know, so, so one part of the question is, you know, what what's the commitment of the researcher to doing quality research? But the other part of the question then is what's the commitment of the source putting the information out, whether it's a campaign or a media source, to um, accurately reflect the research that's been done? And, um, and and so I think it's probably important to distinguish between the quality of the research and how that information is being used. Um, and and so you know can, can you can you trust that what you're seeing on any media source is or campaign is 
totally unbiased in neutral objective research? No, you cannot in any possible way. Um, but, but I do think it's important to distinguish between the two because there are really good, smart people doing polling out there. And, it, you know, it's a matter of how it gets used. So if there was a poll that said, you know, Byron Williams is the overwhelming favorite for the upcoming um, congressional seat, short of accepting that statement as an unimpeachable truth, what might you say to someone who read that poll, um, as nonsensical as it may sound, uh, before rendering an opinion? Is there anything you could say to them? Well, um, if you asked, you know, if you said that to me, I'd want to know who who was polled and what was the sampling frame and um, what was the sample size and what was the margin of error and those kinds of things. Um, if you ask that question to the general public, and so now we're getting at questions about um, overall general information literacy, right? Um, and so to all the librarians out listening to your show, this is what librarians care about more than anything in the world right now. And it's about information literacy. And um, I think it's safe to say that the general public has low information literacy and would not, if they believed the source, would not question what they were told, that that Byron Williams is going to be the next congressman from his district. Um if they believe the source. Now, w w there's a lot of great uh, research out there about this um, right now and the, the particular environment we're in because how our, our brains have been trained through all these different social media apps and how we engage in media and how that if we don't believe the source, um, we automatically discount that information as bad. Um, and, and so trusted sources and trusted messengers are really important in the current environment for how we communicate with people. Well, with, with trust being so critical um, to, to polling, it, it, and based on this conversation, it, seemed, it would seem to me that what I've heard you say is that polling, like many other institutions, whether it's the music industry, it's uh, books, magazines, print, what have you, is sort of going through this moment where technology has opened a door that allows more people to participate in what polling is, but at the same time um, constitutes or sort of uh, enhances the distrust that many feel about polling. Yeah, um, I, I think... I think we're in um, a, a precarious moment in the in modern history in terms of truth and knowledge and beliefs and um, and now I've totally lost the thread. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Just, uh, I went into the dark place in my brain and um, and I'm worried about the collapse of Western civilization all the time. And so I apologize. Now I don't know what you've asked me. <laughs> well, no, no, that, 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 that's okay. We, we, are the, we are also, we moonlight as the rescuer from dark places. No, I, 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 what I'm saying is just that polling has gone through its own transformation like other industries have. And so 
technology has opened the door so that so that more people can can participate in this thing called polling. But at the same time, polling has taken a hit because it's lost um, credibility with some people and not believing it, not trusting it. And so I'm just trying to find, is there a way for polling to get itself out of that dark place, if you will, if that's what if that's where you see it? Yeah. Okay. I got you. I'm, I'm back. I'm back with you. Um, y- yes, there, there are multitudes of ways for people to participate in all kinds of ways. Um, in fact, over and over and over again, if they want to opt in in that way. Um, and then there are all, all kinds of ways to totally opt out altogether as well. And, um, and, and so the, the question is about, basically the integrity of the industry, right? And, and whether people believe in the integrity of the industry. And um, so uh, there, there's campaigns know it. There's real utility in polling. It's why we keep doing it. Media sources love it because it gives them something to report on even 10 months before the election, right? The, the horse race aspect of any campaign. And, and so the, the real question is this interaction between the public and how that polling information gets um, pa- captured for them and packaged for them. And um and, and so poll, the polling and polling companies have worked really hard over the, since the 2016 election to make corrections, to be better. And um, the, the, the smart, good pollsters, and there are a lot of them out there, have done that. And, and they're going to, as technology changes, have to keep doing that. Um, there, there are other questions now embedded in all of this about AI and complicating factors. But, but what will happen is, as technology changes, the polling companies will um, they'll pivot and they'll change too, and they'll continue to be as good as they can be. And then the question is, how does that information get used, and does the public trust the the information that's given to them? And and it's that it's that point which um, who's the messenger becomes very important i would imagine uh let's just say since you since you threw out alf land in 1936 i will count i will see your alf land and i will raise you the soviet union 1936 and i would imagine that voter turnout in the soviet union 1936 was much higher than it was in america but that's a totalitarian state (laughs) So they didn't really have much of a choice and, and actually they didn't have a choice of who they voted for. Uh, so regardless of all the challenges that we've talked about in this conversation about polling, I mean, at the end of the day, isn't polling still a tool to enhance and inform citizenry, which is sort of a bedrock principle in the American narrative? Um, well, depends on who has commissioned the poll, right? Um, if what you're talking about is this general idea that there is a um, neutral objective public media out there that's trying to reflect reality and get objective reality reflected back to the public, to the extent that that's true, yes, absolutely. Um, but, but polls are used for all kinds of reasons, and um, most of them aren't that. Uh, Professor Mitchell Brown, Auburn University, War Eagles. Okay, 
War Eagles, Tigers. What are you? I've never figured that out. Can you explain that real quick in the in the seconds that we have left? Are you War Eagles? In, in the tigers? seconds, in the we, we are. Uh, we we say War Eagle, and we have an eagle that's released um, that flies around the stadium before the game. But our mascot is the Tigers. Um, you you can think of it as um, as the Catholic Church that has multiple saints, right? You can take what you get in the moment that you need it. Yeah, I've never, I've always wondered about that. I, just, I see, I, I've seen the eagle flying over, but I see this mascot tiger running around the field. And I was just trying to figure out what are you? Um, but anyway, that, that's a, it, it's a both and. It's a both and. It's okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Professor Mitchell Brown, Auburn University, I want to thank you so much for for a very enlightening conversation. I feel like I know less than when we started, but it's been a great conversation. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me. I I, I love your show and happy to be included. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook, as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Those listening to the public rally on WSNC can also listen on a tap. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click open to listen from anywhere. The public rally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.